This episode of Humans of Email is sponsored by AWeber, a tool for newsletters, landing pages, AMP emails, and more. Available for free at aweber.com slash humans of email. Start your next idea with AWeber. Happy Women's History Month, Natalie. Yeah, happy Women's History Month to you too, Jen. This is an exciting month for us. It is because we are women. And it's also my birthday month. But yes, we're also women. (laughs) Happy birthday! Yeah, our, our guest this week is someone who has been integral to advancing women in the email industry. So we've got a lot of cool insights from her coming up in just a bit. But um, last week was International Women's Day. And I think you saw the announcement that Women of Email put out, right? I did. I I am so excited about it. I definitely want to hear more about the back end of that, but it's, it's going to be so cool to see it in action. Well, if you were hanging around social media and following the International Women's Day hashtags, there was a lot of backlash, like, oh, great, we have a hashtag uh, who's going to drive some meaningful change in solving gender issues in our country. And um, women of email actually stepped up to try and help advance some issues in the industry. Uh, Something that we've been championing for several years is compensation transparency. And we have normalized it. And the majority of job postings in our community did list compensation. Um, It was a a long process of, it became mandatory for a board member, whoever posted a job on behalf of someone else, uh, or if we got an outside job posting from a recruiter who wasn't eligible to be a part of the community. Um, And then we encouraged other people to do it. It just wasn't mandated. And over the course of many years, I used positive reinforcement to try and normalize it. And every time someone said, what the salary was, I would say, thank you for posting salary. Thank you for posting salary. Thank you for posting salary. It worked. And after a while, if someone posted a job that didn't have salary listed, uh, people would ask them, well, do you know the salary? What's the range? So um, in honor of International Women's Day, we decided to make it official and make it uh, a policy that anyone who posts a job opportunity in the community, they need to disclose compensation. Um, Since we have been uh, trying to bring awareness to what is competitive pay in the industry and putting numbers in front of our members, multiple members have told me that they have increased their their pay, their comp by 50%, 100%. And a couple of people have told me they have tripled their salary. So a 200% increase, which sounds exciting on one hand, but it's also... uh, sad, right? If you were so grossly underpaid that it took a 300% increase to make you competitive, that means there was truly a problem. So it's so important that we know what is what is competitive because the secrecy surrounding compensation has been um, a, one of the big driving factors in the wage gap. Yeah. You know, as somebody who um, finished college, at the bottom of the recession. I mean, like my first job was literally like a $10 an hour, like editorial <laughs> writing small little scraps for a magazine with a graduate degree. Cause that's all that was available at the bottom of the recession. I mean, I think for, for people who graduated around that same time frame, uh, where we've had to claw out of a deeper hole, um, than some of the other generations. And then also like as a, as a person who has two small children, you know, there's the child tax that women get, um, just by having children, right. You don't get as far ahead in your salary. I mean, I think that those are the things that, that lift people in those situations up, right. Those are external factors that, that get taken into consideration when you look at comp. And I think that like, also women have a tendency to say like, well, I'll lowball myself. And I think a lot of companies have historically said, oh, okay, well, if you're going to lowball yourself, like, <laughs> I guess that's what, that's what we'll pay. Right. So I love the transparency in saying, 
hey, this is what people with your salary or with your role, this is what they make. Like this is the average for a person with with your title and your responsibilities. I think it, I think it's awesome. It really empowers women who may have had a harder time getting that salary um, into a competitive spot. I think it really gives them some good ammunition for for a conversation. So I'm, I love yeah. it. It's great. And it's way better than the gender parity bot that came out on the same day. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the gender oh, yeah. parity bot. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the bot that would tell you if somebody of a company tweeted about International Women's Day, the bot would tell you how what the the delta was between men and women's average compensation at the company. Is that the one you're talking about? That is. That was eye opening. Um, I'm sure that led to some uncomfortable, growth minded conversations internally. Well, by the end of the day, I, you know, I was looking at that Twitter feed as well. Unfortunately, it only showed um, that data for UK-based businesses because the the compensation information was public and they were able to build the bot to do it. But by the end of the day, a lot of the tweets that they were responding to were deleted because wow. they were shamed. You know, oh, we're celebrating International Women's Day. And here comes the bot. Women are paid 40.57% less at this company than men. And they would just delete. Whew. That is, uh, wow. So good posts, both directions, I guess. <laughs> we had the positive reinforcement and the negative reinforcement on International Women's Day. Yeah. And I've got, I've got, I'm actually kind of glad to see this more, hey, let's see some meaningful change on International Women's Day because previously I would see a lot of articles, blog posts, uh, social campaigns that were like, let's just celebrate women, which is nice to an extent, but it doesn't really solve problems. But something that always kind of bothered me is these women that we are supposed to be supporting and cheering on who are already successful, they're not necessarily always women who are helping other women. You see that. We, yeah. uh, we see that from time to time, don't you? It has it has a name. Yes, yes. Um, the Queen Bee Syndrome. Um, I read a lot about this a couple of years ago, and I, I had to self-reflect and see the ways in which I – had some queen bee tendencies at an earlier point in my career. So a queen bee is someone who is uh, trying to distance herself from other women. I'm not like those other women. I'm like the men. I'm like you guys, right? I am worthy of advancement. I am worthy of getting paid what I'm worth. And I'm worthy of your respect, unlike the other women. I'm different. And there are a lot of successful women who that's that's how they ascended they aligned with patriarchal forces that you know otherwise would have undermined them and they distanced themselves from women and they become part of the problem and um when i was like in my early part of my career when i first was getting management opportunities i could see like wow I did that a little bit and it's, um, it's, it's a bit shameful and, and I have 180 since then, obviously, you know, I'm doing everything I can to help uplift other women in our industry, but it's something that just always rubbed me the wrong way about all of these celebrations of women in March of every year. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because it, it, it becomes like a template, right. For like, that's how you're treated when you are a direct report. And so I think for some people, not necessarily for you, Jen, but for some people, like, then that's what they think, like, oh, this is what management looks like, you know? And so as they move up in management responsibility, they begin to think like, well, I have to assert my power <laughs> over these other people. And, you know, I feel really lucky. I, I had a mentor really early on in my career who was a woman um, who did everything she could to be my mentor. Even when I was resistant to that mentor relationship, she was like, please let me help you navigate these waters. <laughs> and I'm so grateful to her. Um, she She's kind of the opposite of that experience. But I, I mean, I can't I can't say how important it was to me as somebody early in my career who thought I knew everything there was to know already. Spoiler, I did not. <laughs> that she was like not um, 
you know, she was not the, she was not a queen bee. She was like, I can help you. Like, let me help you. <laughs> and I've taken that, uh, I've taken that on, right. I mean, as, as I move into management roles and director roles myself, like I've, I've kind of taken that same philosophy and been like, you know what, like you, everybody gets so much further when you reach a hand and say, let me help you be better. Let me help you navigate the waters of work-life balance. Let me help you learn the skills that you don't have. Like everybody's better. Can can you name her name? Should we give her a shout? Oh yeah. Her name's Diane Barkley. Uh, and I haven't talked to her, gosh, in it's been a few years, but she taught me all the math I needed to know that I did not get with my master of fine arts degree. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, she, she was so great about, um, I was in a work situation at the time where I was spending a lot of time in, in, um, kind of like boardrooms with like mostly men. And she gave me so many great tips to navigate that situation. I was the youngest person in the room and I was the only woman. And she was like, here's how you make an impact. Here's how you establish your confidence. Here's how you get your voice heard. I mean, she was remarkable for me. I don't even think she knows like how much gratitude I have for her. I should probably tell her, I should probably reach out and be like, I have gratitude for you. <laughs> you Maybe should. Diane, if you're listening, let's get coffee. <laughs> I, I never had that opportunity to have someone hold my hand and tell me how to do those things, how to have confidence and how to speak in a way that's going to be respected. And so I just kind of screamed. <laughs> Listen to me. <laughs> I have something important to say. I I don't. I have this weird kind of um, self confidence that uh, most people don't have. Like I, I have a strong belief in myself and what I'm capable of, and I've always had it. And I just had this like screw you <laughs> kind of attitude. Like I'm smart and capable, uh, and that doesn't really go over well when you just like yell that in people's faces. But um, and most of my mentors were men early in my career, but um, around the time that I was getting really serious about email strategy, I was hired by a woman who, I think she hired me because she saw a little bit of herself in me and she liked that. And and she, um, okay, she honestly kind of threw me to the wolves with some projects we were working on. Um, I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing and I was flailing and doing the best I could. But, you know, she finally sat down with me and was like, okay, you're on the right track. This is great. This is great. This is great. Here's what's missing. And helped me fill in the blanks and educated me in a lot of ways and taught me things about how to be a strategist that I am using to this day that I am now sharing with other people in the industry at my workshops. And, um, you know, we only worked together for a hot minute before the company was having some challenges and they dissolved nearly our entire team. And so our time together was short and we haven't been in touch since then. And it's been, gosh, I think a decade now. Uh, and, and that was Katrina Khan. So Katrina, if you're listening, <laughs> virtual coffee, we could, we could invite Natalie and, and what was the name of your mentor? Diane. Diane. We, we can have a little chat. We can do it. That sounds great. Well, I'm really excited for today's interview because um, there is so much great content that's like directly related to women in the workplace and balancing that. So it's going to be fantastic. It is. So let's get to it. Let's do it. Welcome to Humans of Email, a podcast about the people, ideas, and accidents that drive email forward. I'm Natalie Jackson. And I'm Jen Capstraw. And today we are interviewing Kristen Bond, email snarketing legend. She spent, sent rather, millions perhaps billions of emails over the years. She's a regular speaker at email marketing conferences and events. She's a proud owner of the Salesforce Golden Hoodie and also a co-founder and board member of Women of Email, an association aimed at promoting leadership and cultivating professional growth among women in the email space. I may have heard of it before. Please welcome Kristen Bond. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me and congrats on starting this podcast. I'm very excited that I get to be in the early days of it. 
Much appreciated. Um, well, you and I have some history of being in the early days of things together. Um, we sure do. <laughs> we are both, we are two of four co-founders of Women of Email. Um, and even prior to that, you were pretty deeply embedded in the email community. Why do you think that the email community is special and why is it important to you? Well, it's how I started my career really. And I didn't no, there was a community at the time. And I spent a lot of years thinking I was the only email marketer, which I think a lot of people did early on in their careers, just because no one knew what it was really. And the community wasn't what it is today. And even though when I was starting an email, I lived in Indianapolis and I worked in the same building as Exact Target and went to some of their earlier conferences, I still felt like, oh yeah, no one does what I do. No one knows what email is. And it was really, really great when we started Women of Email and Email Geeks came along and all these other communities. So we got to see, oh, wait, there's a whole bunch of us and we're all really cool and fun and smart. And we all have so much in common outside of our own work. And it's just a really great way to like not feel alone in your career, because even though we do know there are a lot of email marketers out there, there are still a lot of us that might be one person email teams at their companies or even just a smaller part of a very small team. So yeah, it's just nice to know there are other people out there who have probably gone through the same problems that we have, who have maybe found a solution. Because I know I had so many times where I was trying to solve something and no one had any idea what it was or what to do. And it really was hard. But now I can just like type it into a Slack channel and instantly get a bunch of great responses of someone who knows exactly how to solve the problem. It's great. And I love how those relationships then often translate into real life. Like these, these people mm -hmm. that we meet online, eventually we often meet them at conferences. I was just at Unspam and it's awesome to be around our community. It is, I think, very special and uplifting. And I relate so much to that feeling of isolation. And it makes me so glad to hear from members when they say like, this has changed my career. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, having come up on the writer side of things and got thrown into email like so many others. I mean, I know for me, that was like such a huge part of learning what the heck was going on. So I appreciate when other people can share that experience. Um, that's awesome. So one of the things that that I'm also really interested in talking to you about, so Jen and I were chatting and she said, yeah, you know, Kristen's got this whole concept about leaning out. And I was like, oh, I must talk to someone else who has a similar reaction to leaning in. So, I mean, forever women were told like, hey, if you want to get ahead in your career, if you want to make it into the boardroom, you've got to lean in, lean into every opportunity, take every chance, like speak up in every conversation. And I think now that we're entering year three of a global pandemic, and some of us have been working at home with children under our feet for the last three years, the idea of leaning any further in, I'm afraid I will fall and hit my face if I lean any further I in. I hear right? you. So yeah. I would love to hear how does one lean out? What does that mean to you? How did yeah, you get so there? Yeah, so I don't even know if I came up with this term. I just thought, okay, well, this is the opposite of leaning in. I read the book Lean In when it came out, and I thought, well, that sounds exhausting. And this was years ago. I didn't even have a kid yet. Also, it was written by someone who had a lot more resources than the average working woman. So I don't know. I just, I think... Working at startups, which I did a lot earlier in my career, then I went to nonprofit for a while, and now I'm back at a startup. But working at startups, like it's so easy to get burnt out quickly. And that was definitely happening to me pretty early in my career to the point where I had to quit one six months in and then take a three month break before I started working full time again. And it reminds me of a, there's a great quote that I saw um, by the writer, uh, Courtney Martin, and it is, we are the daughters of the feminists who said you can be anything. And we heard you have to be everything. And I think for millennial women and even the generation surrounding that, like, that's so true. Cause like, I, I certainly grow up, like grew up with the whole girl power. You can be anything, do anything you want. And it's like, okay, how do I pick? What do I do? I'm going to do everything and I have to do it well. And a more recent example um, in the movie Encanto, like there's the song Surface Pressure, which is amazing. I've been listening to it a lot, but it's about like, hey, yeah, just keep taking on more burdens, girls. You can do it. You're better. Like just show how strong you are. And 
that's hard. And I just kind of decided I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, I did have a couple of years in my career a while ago, a little bit ago where I was traveling a lot, going to conferences all the time, speaking a lot, building that little organization, Women of Email with Jen. And it was great, but it was a lot. And the it was also while I was working my first like big deal job at Girl Scouts where I was running an email program where we were migrating all of the councils across the country onto the same platform. And I was training 400 people on how to use email. And it was just exhausting to do that much. And then I had a kid and that just kind of added a whole bunch to it. So for me, leaning out is kind of just like taking a step back and realizing I don't necessarily have to be at the forefront of everything to be part of the email community. I'm still going to go to conferences when I can and when it's safe to do so. And I'm still going to be active in groups that I'm in. But I don't necessarily need to force myself to be at the front and center of everything all the time. And I'm finding it's a lot better to just take a step back and listen to other people. Um, when we started when Women of Email, um, there was this idea that like, oh, there aren't a lot of thought leaders out in the email space right now. It, and it's mostly men and there aren't a lot of women thought leaders. And it's the same 20 people being featured all the time. And I don't know, I wrote a blog post about it saying, hey, I want to hear about other people. I'm tired of seeing all these lists of the 20 best email marketers everywhere. Yeah, I want to hear from the people that are actually doing the work and not the people whose job is just to talk about doing the work. There's certainly value in both, but I think there's so much room for other voices. So for me, I'm just kind of in the, while I'm also in the season of life of having an almost three-year-old, I'm just kind of taking a step back and like letting other people have a chance to shine. Um, and then back to the idea of the pandemic and what that's been like for women. My son's birthday is March 19th. So my son turned one the first week of the pandemic. Like we had to, like his birthday party was supposed to be the weekend that we were all like suddenly going on lockdown. So we were going to host the party with a group of three other parents in my mom's group who had kids born in March because we were like, we don't want to go to a birthday party every weekend. So why don't we just do one party for these one-year-olds who aren't going to know the difference anyway? It, but we were, we had this group text and like on that Friday afternoon, as we're all like packing up our desks, realizing, oh, we're going to be working from home for a little bit. We were like, uh, we probably shouldn't have this party, right? Oh, but we already paid for everything. Oh, we want to have it. It's their first birthday. It's a big deal. And then one of the women whose husband was a doctor was like, yeah, Kyle says we definitely need to cancel. Like, this is bad. Like, because that was when we didn't quite see what it was going to be. And we were all in New York City at the time. So, yeah, I had my son at home for a couple of months. Like, daycare was closed from March until July. And that was right when he turned one. So, you know, right when babies are starting to be mobile and trying to talk and suddenly needing solid foods instead of bottles. And like, it just became so much and I didn't take any time off work and it was really, really hard. So like just the idea of adding anything beyond like survival mode at that point was just a lot more than I felt like I could handle. And I think a lot of other women are feeling that right now or anyone who's a parent. I mean, we're all going through something with our kids, whether it's like school closings or doing stuff at home or someone's getting sick. So yeah, I think just it's okay to take a breather. And the way that we've all been conditioned to, oh yeah, you have to have drive. You have to constantly have five side hustles and do everything all the time. It's like, that's exhausting. And I think the pandemic has taught a lot of us, like it's okay to not want that. Like it's okay to like, take a break if you need to. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. I I appreciate you saying all of that. I've got a five-year-old oh, and a seven-year-old who turned, let's see, four and six the same week. That it sounds mm. like your one-year-old did. And we actually wound up doing a virtual first oh, grade, which um, I admire elementary school teachers tremendously. I would make a terrible one. So, <laughs> I, I mean, you're right. Like it was just a, a time where, you went into survival mode, um, and, and I think that was especially hard for a lot of us who have drive to go out and be in a community and have a voice and, and try to be a community leader. And I have a friend who's been saying to me a lot lately, you are enough. You're enough. You don't have to keep going. You're enough. And I, I appreciate you saying that vocally to a lot of women who I think you're right, have been culturally conditioned to be everything to everyone. So that's... um. 
that's a struggle that I appreciate you speaking up about. Um, but you mentioned the, the blog as well. I want to talk sure. a little bit about the blog. Email snarkening. Jen, did you have a question you wanted to ask about it specifically? Yeah, you built this amazing personal brand long before the founding of Women of Email. And you had the Twitter mm -hmm. handle, Email Snarketing. And you were known for just like these very witty uh, comments and sharp criticisms of the industry and of uh, the way things were going in the industry, the status quo of the industry. And that made a big impression on a lot of people and it put you on a lot of radars. So you were, I'd love to hear, you know, what inspired that? You know, you're now taking a, a back seat and, and not wanting to be so visible, um, but that you helped to shape the industry through your criticisms because then you had a platform in which to say there's a problem with for women in this industry. So, and and I'd love for you to, to tell the story of the article you wrote and how that led to the founding of Women of Email. And, but also like what happened before that? What, what was email snarketing all about? Sure, so it kind of started out just like as a random, like being silly on Twitter thing, like a joke one night. I, I was just feeling sassy because that's just how I am. And I was born with the gift of quick wit and good writing skills, but I've put a lot of effort into trying to use them for good. But um, usually if I say something nice, I'm usually maybe thinking something not so nice before, <laughs> like, I, which is terrible. But, but yeah, so I thought Twitter was a great channel for that because I can do my quippy one-liners just for fun. And when I started email snarketing, it was actually anonymous for maybe a year or two because I was afraid that I would get in trouble. Like I started it with, oh, I want to critique other emails. So I would do like subject line Saturday and like just look in my inbox at subject lines and talk about which ones were good or not. I kind of liked doing that, but it got boring after a while. And also after spending all day at work, working on emails and looking at emails, I didn't want to come home and then look at more emails and write about them. So it kind of evolved later, but so I started it when I worked at Warby Parker and I kept the Twitter kind of anonymous. And I, so I had a, a separate Twitter account. So when people see my Twitter account's only been around since 2014, there were others before. Um, but yeah, so I was kind of anonymous and just like saying funny things or things that I thought were funny anyway. And people kept sending me DMs trying to figure out who I was for a while, which was kind of fun. A lot of people thought I was Matt Bird, my friend. And he was definitely part of my inspiration for starting the Twitter account. And like, he and I, I have a very long running DM conversation about all kinds of things that we would like to say publicly, but don't always. Um, but yeah, so it started anonymously and just critiquing of emails. And for me, it was a good way to just kind of develop a point of view about email marketing because at that time I was still pretty early in my career. I was like still fairly early in my email portion of my career and I hadn't really developed a point of view, but there were people that I looked up to in the industry who were big names, um, Justine Jordan and Joel Book at Exact Target at the time. At that time, my goal was, ooh, I want to be one of those. Like, I want my job to be like speaking at conferences and talking about email and writing about email. And that might be even more fun than actually doing email. Um, and maybe it is sometimes I do a little bit of both. Um, yeah, so I did that for a while, but then I kind of got bored with it a little bit. And then when I left Warby Parker, I thought, okay, it's probably okay for me to go public with this now. I was very worried about doing anything to hurt that brand just because they were so popular and very present in the media at the time. So I went public with it and just kept going with writing it. And that was when I was pretty burnt out about working at startups. So I wrote a post that was about email marketer anxiety, which is one of my favorite posts I've written on there, which is the title is email marketer anxiety or how I learned to stop worrying and just send the email. And it's kind of about the idea of like, hey, it feels really, really bad when you make an email mistake in ways that work mistakes in other careers probably don't because it's so public, you can't undo it. A lot of people will see it, your whole company will see it. And that can be really, really stressful for an email marketer. 
And after I wrote that post, um, something kind of clicked with me of, oh, there isn't a lot of content out there about like what it's like to be an email marketer and like what we go through in our careers. And that was more interesting to me. So that's kind of what I started writing about. And frequency has changed a little bit since then. Like I was writing very frequently in the early days, but now I'm lucky to get like four or five posts a year, which is not a lot. Usually it's just just like any good marketing campaign, say something when you have something to say. So I usually have a couple of ideas that I noodle around in my head for weeks. And then when I finally get some time to sit down and write them, I do. So yeah, I just kind of write when I feel like. And I just got the WordPress reminder that my domain's about to renew again. So I was like, oh yeah, I should probably use this domain some more. So that's why you usually see a post in like January or February. It's like, oh yeah, I am paying for this. And there was uh, an article you wrote, not for your own blog, but for another publication that led to the organization of women of email. What was that about? All right. So um, I was part of another email group that was a paid membership group for people who are very active in the email space. And they had weekly newsletter, and then they also put on their first conference. And the organizer had asked, prior to the event, the organizer had asked me to write something about it because like they had all seen email snarketing, they liked my writing. He was like, hey, yeah, can you just write something about this event? And I was like, sure, okay, yeah, I like writing. So we go to the event, um, Jen, you were there. We, I don't think we actually met when we were there though. I think that was no, later. You were famous and uh, I was not. I, I was scared to oh. talk to you. But now you're more famous than me. It's fine. Famous fleeting, Kristen. Mm, Bye-bye. Well, I leaned out. That was a choice. Um, And you leaned in very much. Uh, But at the the event, uh, they had one panel that was a vendor shootout where it was a round robin of 10 vendors who all got on stage to talk about why they, how their company was making email vendor, email better. And of the 10 people on stage, only one of them was a woman. And it was Justine Jordan talking about litmus. And she get and I'm halfway paying attention to the panel, but also like angrily tweeting about this. And she gets up there and she's like, well, we make email better because we hire women. And it was just this awesome mic drop. And I'm like, ooh, yeah, that's right. And so I'm like, ooh, I think I'm going to write about this for the conference. And I kind of did a little research, looked at the speaker list to see how many women were even on it. And a couple days after the conference, the organizers sent out a sur- the survey results because like most conferences, they had surveyed all of the attendees to ask what sessions they liked and what speakers they liked. And in several different categories, like they did the top five best speaker, best presentation and overall best. In all of the categories, women were at least four of the top five. It's like, we're doing okay. It's not a quality thing. So that's what I wrote my article about. And I was very nervous submitting it. I'm like, I don't know if this is what they were thinking when I, when they asked me to write about this conference, because I was very diplomatic in it. I feel like I was very balanced. I had my husband read it a couple of times because it was right around the same time that Gamergate was happening. And I was a little worried that this would horribly backfire on me, but it went fine. I, I wrote it. They, they actually liked it and put it in the new, their newsletter and then nothing happened for a couple days. And I was like, okay, well, that wasn't so bad. But then uh, someone in the group sends a mass email to the entire listserv of all of the members of this group. And it's a couple hundred people at this point just saying like, hey, I, I think we should talk about this article that Kristen wrote. And then this person just kind of said, I have some, I, I think this person... Or, what was it, Jen? Was it was the first one the offer for mentoring for women speakers? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. It, it, yeah, it yeah. was someone who was very prominent in the industry who wanted to be a part of the solution. Yeah, and that was fairly well received. Basically, the whole thread turned devolved into lots of unhelpful speaking t- tips for women and ideas that, oh, well, women just need to be more confident or women need to stop trying to be like men or women need to be more like men and just all this unhelpful stuff. And it was getting really frustrated, frustrating for me. And again, this was still at a time where there weren't communities like Women of Email or Email Geeks or any of the others. So 
it was, it was very like, oh gosh, what did I do? But also, oh, I guess I was the only one who felt like this until a lot of women started participating in the conversation. And Jen sent some amazing emails, like just laying the smack down on some of the people who very much <laughs> needed it. Um, I still, I have them saved as a favorite in my Gmail inbox. So it like shows up at the top and I go through and read it sometimes when I need to. <laughs> Something that I thought was really powerful with that conversation is there were the emails that we all sent publicly to this big list of a couple hundred people who we weren't entirely sure who was even on the list. And then there were the side emails. So after Jen sent that amazing SmackDown email, putting someone in their place, I replied to just her like, oh, thank you so much for saying that. I wanted to say something like that, but I was afraid to. And we later, like there were lots of other side emails going around like that. People were emailing me, thanking me for the article. I was emailing other people like, oh, thanks for saying that. Or, oh, oh, I that happened to me too. Here's what I did. Just things like that. And then a couple days later, Jen emails me and April and Laura, who had all participated in the conversation saying, hey, why don't we just start our own group? This group sucks. And so, <laughs> so we did just that. Um, Jen started a Facebook group like immediately. I, I don't think it was called Women of Email at first. I think it we changed it, it was. Yeah, it was always was women it? of email. We, we kicked around, should it be women of email marketing or should it be women right. of email? Yeah, yeah, but we decided women of email would be a little bit more inclusive because not everyone does marketing necessarily. Like Laura was very, or still is, like very involved in the deliverability space where it's like not quite marketing, but still email. So we did that. We each invited a couple of our Facebook friends who are who we thought would be interested we thought we'd have like 20 people and we did the first day and then people kept inviting others and it very quickly grew I think we had over 200 within a couple of days and yeah it just grew exponentially to the point where we really really had something and we just kind of went under the radar there were conversation email chain conversations where like do we have to tell this other group that we did this or can we just like keep going and we're like why don't we just keep going? They don't have anything to do with this. And so we did. And now we're what, 6,000 members or close to it? We're over 6,000 yeah. in more than 60 countries. Yeah. So we are very much a big part of the email community. We are the email community for half the email people. The email world as a whole has been so supportive. Um, at the time when we were developing our mission, we wanted it to be, hey, we want gender parity on stages at email conferences. We know we're out here. We know there are a lot of us who are good at this, who have things to say, and we want more women on stage. And a question that came up was, well, gender parity, is that reasonable? Like, is the email 50-50 in terms of women and men? And we weren't sure at the time, and it is still in the tech world. So we thought, well, it might not even be 50-50, so does it make sense to ask for that? And so we asked our friends at Litmus if they had any data on it, because at the time they were doing a lot of research reports. And they said, we don't, but we'll ask it in our next survey. And they did. And that's how we found out, oh, yeah, email actually is super evenly split between men and women. And I know there's also other category, categories there for non-binary, which we don't have a lot of data on yet. But point is, yes, 50-50 split is absolutely reasonable and we should do it. And we did. That's the exciting part. Like we tracked it for a long time with conferences and we started our speakers bureau where people could come to us to find someone to speak at their conference. And they did. We have so many requests for speakers. We can hardly keep up with them. And we achieved gender parity on stage at email conferences, which is just amazing. And I know Jen put so much work into all of it and still does every day. And yeah, it's, I'm just really proud of all that we've done with Women of Email. Yeah, we achieved that so quickly, too. Uh, it just, boom, all of a sudden, we saw that gender parity within like 18 months to 24 months. And now it is absolutely the norm. And sometimes we see a slightly bigger majority of women speakers at these events. Uh, when I first decided to go all in on email, I think I had like five or six women separately who were like, are you in women of email yet? Have you joined women of email? So, I mean, I feel like it's such a great, um, 
on the outside as not a founder. <laughs> it was such a great find for me. I feel like that that was a real turning point um, in my career as an email marketer to find that community. And honestly, truth be told, one of the few reasons I stay on Facebook. It's like women of email, my snake identification group that I'm totally obsessed with, and <laughs> this is <my> topic. <laughs> and like seeing the pictures of my kids on the memories when they were like super tiny, which I could definitely do in another spot. So hats off to both of you on building such a great community. Um, of course oh, you're in a you. snake group. I'm in a bug group. I identify the really? bugs in my house. Yeah. No way. Uh, we'll yes. have to trade because I love my snake identification group. <laughs> You've been listening to Humans of Email and we'll be back right after this. So, Natalie, I finally logged into AWeber. I know that you've been taking the lead on our campaigns, and I finally got in there and tinkered around and obsessed, and, you know, I have a problem with perfection, so sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Weren't you Um, the one that said that perfect is the enemy you've done? (laughs) I did. And, okay, our emails are, they're definitely far from perfect, but I get neurotic and then I, I like have to make like spend three hours making an animated GIF um, and, you know, trying to put some kind of colored background somewhere in a way that it's going to break in half of the email clients and then I'm troubleshooting it. But um, something that did make our lives real easier, made my life easy when when I went in there and started tooling around, I wanted to play around with the the banner image, the the header the humans of email, right? So people know who's sending them the email. And I remember when we were talking to the team at AWeber, they were like, we're the only ones that have this integration with Canva. And so we did get a premium Canva account for the humans of email team because we've been building out all of our social assets there. And I was like, oh, well, let me try this edit in Canva button. So I just clicked on it and boom, my Canva instance was open and I was able to in probably about two minutes, designed the whole email banner with like our little weird aliens and stuff. And then I'm like, okay, I'm done. And boom, there it was. It was incredible. And I'm old school. Like I learned Adobe Creative Suite and I have not been like really into Canva because I feel like it's got some limitations that I find frustrating, but uh, that was awesome and so quick and easy. Have you tried it out yet? No, but I'm a big Canva fan because I am design challenged. And while I also know the creative suite, (laughs) I personally prefer to work in Canva because there are fewer things that I can break. So I think it's super cool that you don't have to download the file, upload the file, add the file, modify the file, right? Like, I mean, when you talk about user experience, cutting down on the number of clicks, that's like gold right there. That's a super useful, super cool feature. It's awesome. Yeah. It's so easy. It's just, you just click, what's the button called? Here it is. Edit on Canva and then boom, 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 boom. You create your graphic and then there's a big button at the top that just says save to AWeber. And there it is. Does not get easier than that. I love it. So yeah. AWeber, the official email service provider of humans of email. And if you are interested in giving AWeber a try, you can do that. If you go to aweber.com slash humans of email, we've been working just on the free version of AWeber and finding that it meets a lot of our needs, but they are upgrading us. I did find out, Natalie. Uh, We're going to have some more functionality here over the coming week that we can talk about, but everything we've talked about to date, totally free. Amazing. So cool. So head over aweber.com slash humans of email. Hey gang, Tom here. We're going to be getting right back to the show. But first, we want to take a moment and answer some of your fan mail in our segment that we're calling The Bounce. Hi, Jen. Hi, Nat. What's going on? Hey, Tom. We're excited to have our first bounce. I, we have a whole bunch of great questions, but we can always use more. Uh, please, we'll talk about how to get them to us at the end of this question. But today's question comes from Tanya Konchinski, and I hope I'm doing it justice, and I'm not. I'm the one that's allowed to mispronounce, um, but I'm going to play it out for y'all, 
and you guys can answer that question. How does that sound? Sounds great. I'm ready. All right, here we go. Hi, my name is Tanya Kinchinski, and I have a question around B2B subscription marketing lists. So I've seen some people when managing their profiles, they have two check boxes, and then I have others that have 20. What is a best practice in regards to what makes sense to how many you should have and what are the subjects that we should be allowing people to opt in and out of? Or should it really just be a yes, keep spamming me? No, I don't want to hear from you ever again. Thanks. Bye. Oh my goodness. I could see some lengthy checkbox situations happening at the bottom of a forum. And because it's B2B, Jen, I bet you sometimes those forums also have like, I don't know, 15 fields they want you to fill out so that you can get the white paper that they'll then immediately have somebody call you on. What do you think? Well, I mean, we're talking about like the boxes that you have to check for campaign categories, right? Like, do you want to opt into our newsletter about XYZ? And do you want to receive messages regarding events? I think that's the direction we're going with this question. Yeah. And and I, I would say it's like, it's better than just assuming everyone who fills out the form wants your email. But um, yeah, I definitely, I could definitely see how this could lead to some questions about like how much is too much. I, there are a few different ways this could be approached. Uh, I'm a big fan of just subscribing them to everything that might be relevant to them if they filled out the form. And then on your unsubscribe page, you could have some opt-down options. Let them pick and choose the campaigns that they're interested in if they decide that they are too bothered by the volume of email they're receiving or the quality, uh, the category of email they're receiving, then they could change and, and turn off like, okay, I don't want event invitations. I don't want blog posts, but I do want white papers and reports. What do you think? I know you you took a different approach at your last role where we worked together on some projects. Yeah. I mean, um, I definitely did. I, but you've got my head spinning now with some ideas for backend automation. I was going to say like, well, why not just send an immediate automated email that's like, hey, we saw that you're interested in receiving email from us, like pick your topics and then like kind of make your high level categories. I think what you're referring to my last job is that I used the newsletters as a way to like fill intentional content funnels and then distribute said content into those content funnels, right? Like there were topics that were aligning with services that needed thought leadership. Um, but as you're saying this, I'm, I'm like, I mean, realistically, if you work in a B2B business where you have lots of different services or lines of business you have to satisfy, the landing page in question is probably tied to one of those service lines. And if that is the case, to your point, Jen, could you not use backend automation to say if box I'd like to receive email is checked to tie where that landing page came from to the opt-in category related to the service line? Yeah, if you're like segmenting by vertical or some kind of line of business, then if you can make assumptions about that based on the lead source, that's great. That's one last question to ask them. If that's not something that you have been able to capture, uh, it's something you could ask at the point of capture if it's just like a simple segmentation question and it's just one question. Or you can um, ask after capture, right? You've captured the email address. The next page is like, and hey, by the way, are you in healthcare, hospitality, um, or whatever the verticals are that you want to uh, segment on? But I, I tend to not give people options of what campaign categories they want to subscribe to from the get go. Um, I think it's better to like save that as an opt down option. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that one of the things I always love to say to, to P2P email marketers is like, nobody's ever opted into a sales nurture. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do them, but nobody's ever been like, you know what I'd like? I'd like to be nurtured with some sales content. I mean, you have to make it intentional and useful and valuable, but like everybody's pretty wise to the fact that if you download a white paper, you're probably going to get into a sales nurture. So one of the other ways to think about this is um, that I, I did pretty successfully at um, an influence in my last job is like used the newsletter as like an enticement for self-nurture at the end of a sales funnel, right? So um, that's some another way to think about it is like, could you 
could you put this as like a call to action at the end of your top of funnel nurture to say like, do you want more great content like this? Subscribe to the following newsletters of your choice. So another way to think about it. Tanya also wanted to know how many options she should have. And I don't think there's a really an easy way to answer that, right? Not an overwhelming number. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Keep it simple. Keep it concise. Like how many campaign categories could you possibly have in B2B? Oh, oh, Jen. Oh, Jen, you can go like... <laughs> it, it, it has been a few years since I was hands-on in a B2B role. I could think of like 30, just, you know, off the cuff that a company might have. <laughs> okay, Tanya, do not have 30 options. Do not. <laughs> it's too many. <laughs> Thanks, Tanya. All right. Now, ladies, thank you once again for your expertise. If you've got a question for Jen and Natalie and would like to have it featured on The Bounce, All you have to do is go to anchor.fm slash humans of email and click the message button. Please make sure to give us your contact info in the form so we have a way to get in touch with you. And thanks so much. We'll see you again next time right here on The Bounce. Should I be should should I be on Facebook again? I actually let go of Facebook during the early days of the pandemic because my brain just had too many things piled onto it. But you can give it some consideration. Are... The um, algorithms have changed. I don't see um, a lot of controversial articles and topics coming up anymore. Um, things that would really upset me. They're, they're not on my feed anymore. And I'm a part of a bunch of weird communities, like all <laughs> bugs go to Kevin uh, and, um, and like people against farmhouse modern. And yeah, that Kristen, come back, give it, give yeah. it a try. You might like it. I know I'm in a, I'm in like a hiking group that I really love as well. And then, um, my second favorite group, I'm a horse girl and there's a group that's like dedicated to amateurs falling off their horses and everybody's like, Oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> we're all falling off our horses. And it's pretty hysterical as well, but you can find these like super niche groups. Yeah. And I have to give Sophie our producer credit. Who's on the line right now. She's the one who put me in the anti farmhouse modern group. <laughs> I do what think do it's interesting though. Like, <laughs> It sounds like the value that people are getting from Facebook is very much community based these days and not so much any of the other stuff that it originally was. So I just think that's interesting. Like I was in the very early days of Facebook because I was in college when it started. So I was on it when you had to be in college with a .edu email address to use it and like your parents weren't on it and brands weren't on it. And it was just like a very different place. You're talking about the, the facebook.com days. Yeah. I, I remember those as well. Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when they first made statuses a thing and like they all started with is because like it would say like Kristen is, and then you had to fill it in. So like yep. if you go back and look at your memories, it shows like, really dumb statuses like Kristen is about to go to lunch or something. It's like, (laughs) why? So, yeah, I mean, it was early days for social media. We were all still figuring it out, but, and I'm not saying I necessarily would want it to go back to that because that had some weirdness, but yeah, it was just a very different time. Like my first friends on there were like people I was currently in class with where it's like, now if I saw their name, I'd be like, who is that? I don't know. Um, so I have, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about CRM because I'm a total CRM geek oh, and I see in your new sure. title, you're the senior CRM manager at Candid, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I have this like longstanding soapbox that email marketers have like, we deserve at least 50% stake in CRM installs. And I feel like I get a lot of pushback on that from companies, not necessarily the one where I work at now, but from other companies you are like, what? No, CRM is a sales tool. Um, so of course... I got to hear your stance. CRM and email marketing. (laughs) Let's do it. I know we just met, but I think we just became best friends. Um, (laughs) I knew you'd get along. Yes. Um, So first off, an interesting thing, like for about my job, like, so defining CRM 
has been an interesting thing because when I took the job, I was wanting to expand a little bit beyond just email. But when I took the job, I realized, oh, our team is essentially the email team. We also do text and direct mail and other channels. But our team, when I started, like uses like we use Braze as our ESP and we refer to that as our CRM. But when I started, like our company was D2C. So if anyone doesn't know what Candid is, we sell clear aligners for your teeth. So to straighten your teeth, I'm wearing them right now. And uh, yeah, so when I started, we were a D2C company. So you could purchase them online. You could do a starter kit at home, make an impression of your teeth or go into one of our studios and then send it back or whatever. And get your aligners and do it all at home. Like we have this cool like scanner box thing. But we just shifted our business model where now you go through a dentist instead. So that very much changed our work. We're not chasing customers so much. We're chasing dentists, trying to get them to offer the product. And with that change, we're now working with our sales team. Like this was the pro side was a small part of our business before, but we decided to double down on that. And so the pro side was using Salesforce for everything and also MailChimp and a can't get into it too much, but there were some problems with how it was being run with, with people who don't have email backgrounds working on it. So now my team is taking over that, but we're just now getting into the conversations of, okay, well, if we're using Salesforce, that's cool, but we need to be able to integrate it with our email platform. And that's something I have a ton of experience with. Um, at Girl Scouts, I did 110 migrations of other ESP to Salesforce Marketing Cloud and did a lot of work with that in Salesforce. So it's like, I know what I'm talking about here. We can do this. But at Girl Scouts, like there were constant battles of, hey, email is part of this. We are a technical tool. We need to be factored into decisions when you are re-architecting all of the data. We need to be part of this. We need to understand what's going on. And we're starting to get in those conversations at my current job. And it's exciting for me because I actually know what I'm talking about more this time than I did in previous roles, just because I've grown and learned, learned more. Last week, my I had a weird reaction personally to like a meeting I was in where we were talking about our Salesforce instance and some of the things that we needed to do. And I realized, oh, I actually know a lot about this. I know about objects, I know fields and how it works. And But what I don't have is a certi cert certification in like the actual Salesforce admin side of it. I have certifications in marketing cloud. So being the petty person that I am rather than just like get mad or complain about it, I just like started doing trailhead modules to like study for the Salesforce admin certification. And I was like, I don't want to be a Salesforce admin. I just want to like show them up in meetings and I want to do this out of spite. <laughs> Very healthy. And I, yeah. And I'm like, I mean, it also helps me professionally, whatever, but, and I don't know if it's because I've just been watching Curb Your Enthusiasm lately and they're all about the spite on that show. It's just the way my personality is like, rather than just like keep complaining about something, it's like, oh no, I'm going to find a solution that like helps me, but also like accomplishes the goal that we have. But I don't know how many times where it's like, I, where I've just experienced a, hey, you didn't consult us with how you set this thing up in Salesforce. Therefore, I can't do the thing that I'm being asked to do in my emails. And like, we're trying to prevent that from happening now with my current role. So stay tuned on that. But I, I'm excited for the challenge, actually, because I'm like, I had taken the job to get a little bit outside of my comfort zone. Um, I wanted to learn a different email platform than what I've been working with. And I wanted to expand beyond just email and start working on some other channels. And I, I did get to do that for a few months, but now I'm getting back in my com comfort zone and realizing like, oh yeah, I'm really good at this, at my comfort zone. I've had a few months of a little bit of discomfort of a, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I've been in Girl Scout land where all of my reporting has had to be on spreadsheets because that's what was available to me where now it's like oh I have to learn how to do looker dashboards and how to do amplitude and all these other technologies so I've definitely been outside of my comfort zone the last few months which was a little bit scary because um, I've had a lot of success over the last couple of years like while I was at Girl Scouts like I think I think I already think of like oh that's kind of my glory days like that's when we started Women of Email it's when I was speaking at conferences eight to 10 times a year. Like I was really like active and 
I feel like that's all behind me now. So I'm just trying to figure out what's next. So it's a little bit of the leaning outside of it, but it's also like, oh, I have to actually do something. I can't just like sit there and be like, I used to be really good. Like I still have to move myself forward. So I'm kind of figuring out what that looks like. Well, I think it's incredible to get outside of your comfort zone. It's the only way you can advance. And of course I'm kidding when I like made that quip about like, oh, that's, that's healthy because I am a, such a huge champion of channeling those negative emotions and turning it into something positive. I channeled rage, like out and out rage in the creation of women of email, because there were men saying, remember. I hate women speakers. I hate women who think that they can play by the rules of men. And I was, oh, hell no, and turned it into something positive. So I love that you feeling um, disrespected led you to level up your own knowledge and, and bring more to the table. And I mean, even in your um, evolution of your social media brand, email snarketing, you have come full circle and become like, the softer side of Kristen, right? Yeah, like, well, because I realized I didn't, I can say funny things, but it's like, I don't want to, like, be mean, necessarily. I think it's possible to be critical and still have a point of view on things and call out things that aren't good or aren't right. But I think it's more important to be constructive and helpful with that. And I know part of this comes with, like, with it, women of email, when we instituted the policy of like, hey, let's stop campaign shaming, because there was a while when people were posting, did anyone get this email from this brand? Look at this awful typo, or look at this bad thing they did. And it's like, that's not constructive. The email's already gone out. They can't fix it, probably. So let's just not do this anymore. And there was a time when we decided we had to ban it, because like, there were a lot of posts like that. And it's like, yeah, people get millions of emails a day. There will be mistakes. And we should be so lucky that people even notice our mistakes, honestly, because we get a lot of emails. Um, but yeah, I, with email snarketing, I was like, oh, I just don't want to live in this cloud of negativity all the time. And there's a thing in comedy about like punching up rather than punching down. And it's and once I learned about that, that, it just clicked. It's like, oh, yes, of course. And the idea is, like, don't be mean or make jokes or critical things about someone that's below you or less powerful than you or less influential or whatever. You got to punch up. So take on the big corporate groups, take on whatever. And that's kind of the way you approach it. And I'm somewhere in the middle of all that, and not <laughs> all the way up at the top or at the bottom, but I also recognize it's like, okay, I don't want to discourage people who look up to me as a role model or as a leader in the industry. Like, I don't want to like discourage or hurt them or offend them or make them afraid that I'm going to say something mean about their emails. And I'm not like, I just, I don't want to do that. That makes sense. Yeah. Y you, you started out as nobody. So punching right. yeah. up was and, everyone. Right. Exactly. And, um, and also just in general for Twitter, it's like where my headspace is, if anyone has seen it recently, it's mostly like toddler stuff these days, because that's just where my brain is right now. But it's also other things when I think about them. Well, speaking of toddler stuff and other interests you have, tell us a little bit about the Kristen who exists outside of email. What is something that might surprise folks uh, or, you know, just kind of unusual, quirky things about Kristen. Sure. Um, yeah. So everyone had all their pandemic hobbies. I didn't get one. Mine was raising a toddler. Um, but one thing I started, we bought a house last year and moved a little bit outside of the city. And after vaccines happened, my dad came to visit and brought some of my stuff from his house. And that included a box of my American Girl doll stuff. And so I spent a lot of time last summer trying to restore my Molly doll and my sister Samantha doll. Like I found all these tutorials online for like how to clean their hair and how to fix it. And like, oh, if their hair is wet, you can use a flat iron on it. Like I was trying, don't try that at home unless you've like read a lot about it because you can melt their hair. Um, but yeah, so I spent a lot of time on that and then too much money on eBay, like buying some of the clothes I didn't have for them. So that became kind of a fun little weird hobby I had and still do. Um, my sister's doll was the Samantha one and her hair was beyond control. My sister had aspirations of becoming a hairstylist when she was a child and she cut 
the doll's hair. These are very expensive dolls. Don't cut their hair. But anyway, so I had to like figure out how to completely replace it. So I like removed the wig, bought a new one on Etsy and like reattached it and sent it to her for Christmas. So yeah, fun little thing I've been doing there. Um, I'm also just, I, I don't have as much time for it anymore, but I'm really into anything crafty, knitting, sewing. I've been doing a lot of embroidery lately because uh, it's something I can just also keep at my desk. And when I need to do something with my hands, but still listen to a meeting, like it's really good. Like I can just like work on embroidery, but I'm still participating in the meeting because otherwise, if I don't do something like that, I'll just like pick up my phone and start scrolling. And that's frowned upon in meetings generally. And it's not that I'm bored. It's just that like my brain, my hands just like need to be doing something in my yeah, so embroidery is a good hobby for me. Another thing I've recently gotten into uh, last year is Pure Bar, which is a workout thing that's like a mix of Pilates and ballet. And for for my longtime fans who know, in my early days of living in New York, I was taking ballet classes on the Upper East Side, like actual ballet classes um, at a school that also had a pre-professional program for teenagers. So like during the time I was there, we saw several of the kids like grow up and move on to New York ballet, which was really cool. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can not do any of the stuff you can do because I sit at a desk all day and my body is different as a 26 year old. Um, but I got really into that, but then that kind of fell away over the years. So I was excited to start trying Pure Bar. Um, I don't typically enjoy working out, but like this is like the one that has stuck. I'm doing my 75th class tonight. Um, very excited about it. And yeah, it's nice for me, like during this pandemic and during this time where I've moved out of the city and don't really know anyone here, it's nice to like just have a thing to do outside of the house and to be around other people. Um, I've done some classes virtually just because I can't always go during the week. But yeah, it's been a nice little thing for me to do and I really enjoy it. Kristen, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for Hello. joining us in our, our little project here. Where yeah, can folks having me. follow what you've got going on, what you're doing, anything you want to plug? Email snarketing on Twitter. And my blog is emailsnarketing.com. Since I've just now mentioned it, I will try to actually write something soon so that there's something new. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Kristen. It was really a pleasure talking with you today. Um, for all of you listening, be sure that you find us at humansofemail.com. Follow us on the socials, reach out, let us know what you think, and be sure to subscribe. Thanks again, Kristen. Have a great day. You've been listening to Humans of Email, a podcast about the people, ideas, and accidents that drive email forward. An Idea Empire production. Copyright 2022.